Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. Uh, our next president uh, is going to be sworn in two weeks from today. Uh, and that's where I want to start out, by the way. I, w- I want to just go through sort of where we stand <clears throat> with Trump news as we're two weeks away from his inauguration. So, uh, <clears throat> first of all, he and Chuck Schumer have gotten into a little bit of a fight uh, in the last 24 hours. Uh, Donald Trump is so amazing to me on Twitter because he literally, in, in a span of like five minutes, he says... We need to work together. We need to all work together, uh, reach across the aisle, make things happen. And then literally in the next tweet, he calls Chuck Schumer a clown. Like, gets right straight to the name calling. A man who he has donated to in the past. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this is just sort of the uh, – here's, here's what I think Americans are missing. Uh, in, the, in the last eight years, we've had a very, very serious president who – you know, had his lighter moments, right? But the the sort of the BS of of uh, typical dragging each other down politics, which has been around for a long, long time. But Barack Obama sort of gave us a little bit of a break from. I mean, Donald Trump is bringing back that whole kayfabe, play acting, uh, political thing, like. If, if he was to sit down in the room with Chuck Schumer and Chuck Schumer was to address him man to man, Donald Trump would talk to him like a man, right? But in the in the public arena, he's got to do things like call him a clown. He's got to call Hillary crooked. He said all these horrible things about Barack Obama. Uh, and then when he had a chance to sit down with the president, uh, he was very polite, very nice, very respectful might not be the word but he was definitely subdued he wasn't calling names and and spitting fire so we're gonna get into a war of the words here with uh chuck schumer and and donald trump schumer to his credit yesterday uh rose to the occasion and did not uh go low when trump went low this is not a time for calling names it's time for them to step up to the plate if they want to repeal and show us what they'd replace it with. Okay, so it's not a time for name-calling. It's always a time for name-calling when you're Donald Trump. And uh, Newt Gingrich slithered out of his cave uh, to to say a little something about Chuck Schumer versus Donald Trump in a war of Z-words. And I would say to Senator Schumer, if you look what happened to Jeb Bush, or you look what happened to Hillary Clinton, you should be very worried if Donald Trump decides to focus on you, because so far the track record is pretty good that <laughs> he can define you a lot better than you can define him. Newt ain't wrong. Not wrong. Newt ain't wrong. Newt is uh, a slug human. He is a human slug. 
but he's not wrong about that. You know, Hillary might escape all of the, when it comes to her legacy, looking back years from now, all of the name-calling from Donald Trump. She has other accolades. Jeb Bush, that's the only thing he's going to be remembered for. You know what? You're right. At least outside of Florida. You're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, and even in Florida, right? Like, yes, he was Governor Jeb Bush, but, like, things move so quickly in Florida, he'll have a little bit of a legacy in Florida, but they're not going to remember him fondly as some great governor. In Florida. They're going to remember him as the dude who just bombed. In Florida, it's either that or the samurai sword that he gifted Marco <laughs> Rubio on the floor of the Senate. <laughs> so, it's some weird it's one, ritual. Of my, one of my favorites. It's pretty great. Uh, yeah, and so, you know, I, I, I would caution Chuck Schumer from getting into the War of the Words, which he, which he didn't do. He, he, he seems to uh, have risen to the occasion. Now, right down the street, just across the street from the White House, as a matter of fact, the Trump Hotel is open. $212 million luxury D.C. hotel. Now, here are a couple of stories from the Trump Hotel. I am a noted lush right any lies there i like to drink no sir so you could go into the trump hotel and get a drink right you don't have to stay there you can just go to the bar now our friend jessica sidman from uh, the washingtonian has this story about the bar at the trump hotel now jamie you 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 you've gone out for drinks of course. What would you? What What is a drink? What's the most you would pay for? Like What's the a, cutoff? Like yeah. a really, really nice, like a place that they take it very seriously. You'll pay a lot of money for a good mixed drink, a good cocktail. You would pay. Well, so we went to the Columbia Room here in D.C. Okay, in Shaw, That's which a, is an example of a nice, classy very, very cocktail nice. bar. Top of the line yes. bartenders. Yes. I think maybe the highest price cocktail there that I would have purchased myself would be like fifteen. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe I was sixteen. Gonna say, I was gonna say sixteen. Sixteen. If you're, if I'm paying more than sixteen dollars for uh, a cocktail, I'm, I'm, I'm already drunk. But my realistic cutoff is twelve dollars. Okay, like that's in fair. a regular cocktail bar or bar, twelve dollars. We've gotten to a point where like a fourteen dollar cocktail is acceptable across all of Washington D.C. And it should not be. I'm not quite there yet. I'm not okay with that being normal. But if you're a nice bar and you've got a real program, I'll pay 12 bucks for a cocktail, right? I'll do that. The Trump Hotel, <laughs> this is unbelievable. Their drinks, $20 to $24. $20 to $24. So they have a thing called the Romanesque Revival. And by the way, this is made, the, the bourbon that they use in this is bourbon, honey, mint, and ginger. Okay? Bourbon, honey, mint, and ginger. All right? You hear anything in there that's wildly expensive? Sounds like something I can make at home. All right. The bourbon, I know, happens to be made with bourbon that, that some friends of mine make. Where's that from? Highwire in Charleston. Got it. They make a delicious bourbon called Revival. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they use a lot of like uh, heirloom grains to make the bourbon. It's not a cheap bourbon, by the way, but it's also not like one of these... You know, crazy things that you have to. It's it's just like a, a very nice bottle of bourbon. Okay, All right. Bourbon, honey, mint, ginger. Twenty four dollars for one drink. I'm looking at the drink, by the way. It's just served in like uh like an old fashioned glass. Are you kidding me? It looks kind of tall, but mm, it doesn't look. That there's tall. a lot of ice cubes in it. It doesn't look that tall. That that looks like a standard average. We should tweet out a picture of this, by the way. 
Yeah, let's do that. We'll tweet out a picture here. You got that? Yeah. They also have another cocktail called the Please Sign Here. It's mezcal, Aperol, chartreuse, and lime juice. All right? Nothing exotic there. It's basically like tequila, Aperol, chartreuse, lime juice. Okay? All right? $25. They've raised prices. They have the Benjamin Bar and Lounge is what it's called. Now, when they first opened up just in September, the prices ranged from 16 to 24, which is not cheap, but also like, or sorry, 16 to 20, not 24, 16 to 20. And they jacked it up to 20 to 24. And now we're looking at a $25 cocktail. Can you, like, $25 for a drink, one drink. The bar's dry aged burger now costs, oh boy, $24. $24. Oh boy, oh boy. What was, would you pay $24 for a burger? No. What's uh, what's the most expensive burger you've ever bought? What's the one at uh, Husk in Charleston? How much does that one cost? Oh, geez, it's not it's not even close to that. Which it's, is like a world renowned. It's the best burger I've gourmet, ever had. Gourmet burger. Yeah, it's the best burger I've ever had. I'd say I think that was probably like fifteen or sixteen bucks, which is mm-hmm. a lot of money for a burger, by the way. But like, I'll pay that. I'll pay that all day long. Okay, that's delicious. Yeah, fifteen bucks. Fifteen bucks. Um, there is a place in New York that has a $30 burger. But apparently it's worth it. But I'm, I'm not going to pay that. Anyway, don't get out of here with that kind of money. Good grief. Travis Waldron from the Huffington Post is with us. Hi, Travis. You write about sports. We talked about sports. We're going to talk to you about sports. But before we get there... Uh, before your love of sports comes your love of Kentucky, Indeed. where you are from. Indeed. Uh, and you get to write about politics, which I always I always like when you get outside the box a little bit. Every now and again. Yeah, it happens. I like when it happens. Um, well, we have a new uh, legislative session in Kentucky. They are sort of lining up their priorities, and their priority seems to be... Right to work. Right to work. Right to work. It has been a priority of the Kentucky Republicans... For a long time. Why? Well, I mean, you know, it's been the priority well, of Republicans everywhere for I, yeah, a long but, but time. I got, yeah, but, uh, but like, why is it such a priority for these Republicans? Well, I mean, it's what they say is that workers should have the freedom to not pay union dues and, yeah. and shouldn't have to join a union to join or to, to work for a certain shop. Yeah. Um, and it's not just right to work. In Kentucky, they're also trying to repeal the prevailing wage law and state contracts, which you know, mandates that workers make a certain wage when they're when they're doing public work, essentially. You know, building schools, building roads, et cetera, et cetera. So they're they're really going for it. And uh this is something they've they've in the in the state Senate, they've passed versions of this several times now. They've never gotten it through the House because they haven't controlled the House since nineteen twenty. Uh. uh but they swept Republicans swept the uh, state house in in november and gained full control of the government for i mean it's the first time in literally almost a century that they've controlled the state house in kentucky and and the state the house had been the bulwark against uh against this and against a whole lot of things and now they control the governor's mansion which is 
only the second time they Kentucky's had an elected Republican governor in my lifetime. Um, and and this is going to go through. I mean, it's going to by the House passed it yesterday. By tomorrow, uh, Kentucky's going to be the twenty seventh right to work state in the country and the last one in the South to go right to work. How is that going to uh, impact the people of Kentucky? Depends on who you talk to. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah, of you course. Ask, you ask Matt Bevin, it's going to be great for everybody. That's the governor. Uh, you ask- real quick, real quick, side note. Oh, okay, I want to go over for, I was at CPAC a couple years ago, just to go, and I, I got cornered by this guy who was just, like, relentlessly just... You ever go to a party and you get cornered by somebody and they walk away finally and you're like, man, I think that person's on coke. <laughs> this happened to me at CPAC. And then I was like, oh, that was Matt Beffin. That's the guy that's going to run for governor <laughs> of Kentucky. He was, it was the oddest thing I've ever seen. Anyway, so he thinks this is great. He thinks it's great. If you talk to union contractor or union workers and, and a lot of contractors that deal with unions, they, they don't think it's that great. They think it's going to, you know, one of the concerns is going to lead to a lot of out-of-state workers coming in uh, that's going to change a lot of things. It's going to lead to a decline in wages for organized workers. And, and, you know, I mean, one of the big things on Right to Work is how how political it is. It, it's, it can be politically decimating to unions um, right. because, you know, stipulations in these laws say you can't make dues mandatory. And, and in one of the Kentucky bills that's being considered, uh, it also – limits what kind of union money can go toward political activities, which is not just decimating to the unions, but also hurts the Democratic Party, which the unions support. So there's a political aspect here. I mean, the on the prevailing wage side, the Republicans say it's going to save the state a lot of money. Yeah. There have been studies uh, from Kentucky-specific studies that say they do and they don't. Right, uh, right. You know, they kind of go back and forth. But, I mean, the, the impact of of right to work is as generally speaking uh been lower wages for union workers and to me th- there are a couple things uh if the message of Donald Trump if you just take it right like literally without mm-hmm. all the contradictory evidence that would prove that what he says is actually garbage but if you just take him at his word right better jobs for Americans more money for Americans more jobs for Americans this is the message of the union right Across the board. This right. is what unions are here for. And so, it, to me, it, it, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the disconnect is for a lot of Republicans, right? Because it, it makes it so much easier for American workers to get screwed. Well, I think, you know, to be to be Kentucky-specific. Sure, yeah. Uh, I think Democrats there have, generally speaking, done a bad job of, yeah. of making that point yeah. uh, and of saying... You know, not just in Louisville and, and Lexington, which are the big union centers in Kentucky, but also, you know, particularly in Appalachia and, and other parts of the state that, hey, like, you know, if they pass this, these bills, it's, it could hurt you. Uh, they haven't made that argument necessarily. There's there's organizations and there's politicians and there's people who have. Uh, but, the you know, it, it's been kind of all over the map at times. And I think that's that's really hurt them. And, you know, <laughs> The last two, three presidential elections have not been popular Democrats for Kentucky voters, right, and sure. that's hurt them down sure. ballot. Yeah, um, they've lost, a, you know, they lost the governor's mansion, which is something that Kentucky, like Kentucky Democrats, haven't done in a while. You know, they lost in '99, I think, and and immediately reelected a Democrat after that. Um, 
it, but it's hard, right? Because Kentucky, you know, if you if you step out of just the workers part, Kentucky is probably the biggest success story in the nation when it comes to Obamacare. Yeah. Um, especially yes. for a red state. They were the only uh, red state. At one point, this was true. I don't know if it's still true, but they were Connect, the, isn't that what it's called? Connect. Connect yeah. They were the only red state that uh, expanded Medicaid and set up their own exchange. And it's been a wild success. And there's some sort of disconnect there because Matt Bevan ran against Obamacare and won. Um, and they haven't been able to make that case. They haven't been able to make it on workers. They haven't been able to make it on health care. It's, it's, you know, if I knew the answer. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. You know, but, I, 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 I make this argument all the time. I make this case all the time, right? So o- o- Obama gets elected in 2008. Uh, probably the biggest mandate any president has ever had, right? Because you've got it's fully democratic, mm-hmm. and they couldn't even bring up card check to a vote, man. Right. That was the first story I covered in Washington. Is that right? Yes. But that's that. That to me, even now, like even when I look back at like where things went wrong for Democrats, it started back then. Yeah, and I mean, I it started a long time ago. But, that, it, but I mean, but that to me know, is a turning point. I, yeah, I think if you look, there were a lot of people who kind of made that point after this election that yeah. hey, the decimation of labor. Yeah, I mean, this isn't Kentucky. You know, this is the the South has always kind of been the the right to work area. Yeah, the South and parts of the West, but. You know, since 2012, we've seen West Virginia, Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan go right to work. Those are those are labor states. If you look at Kentucky, in the it's actually bucked the national trend. Kentucky historically has had fewer union workers than the national rate as a percentage mm. of the total workforce. But in the last four years, Kentucky's share of the workforce that's organized has actually grown uh, to roughly 11 percent, which is fairly in line with the the national average in that time. And, you know, you look at across the state, how many you have Ford plants, G plant, the, you know, auto manufacturers that are, that are organized and a lot of industrial workers, a lot of obviously teachers and public employees. And and they're, you know, one of the things in these right to work bills in Kentucky is that public employees aren't going to be allowed to strike. And man, you know, that's a, it's a major loss of of leverage and a major loss of power for that is ridiculous. And that's you know I think a lot of people when you when you first think of public workers you say well that's teachers firefighters cops right, but you know you're looking at sewage workers city workers all over and and what they've also done I believe this made it through in the the bill that passed yesterday in the house is there is a clause in there that preempts local localities from passing oh, their man. own prevailing wage their own uh, union protection. So cities like Louisville and Lexington that are still controlled by Democrats at the city level, still vote Democratic uh, at, the, at every level, they they don't really have any recourse on this either. So there, There's a trend, by the way, of like, it's. I, I think it probably the earliest thing that we're seeing is North Carolina, right? Where mm-hmm. the, that political science professor down there said, North Carolina is not a democracy anymore. Republicans have gotten so good at manipulating the system that they don't need the people to vote. They can strip powers away from the people that they voted for. And and that's going to... Sp- well, they, 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 they did it, by the way, with relative ease. Mm-hmm. And that goes, I think, to the political side of right to work. I mean, yeah. that's what some of, the, some of the workers that I talked to, some of the union side people that I talked to were really concerned about that. Yeah. That, you know, this is how we fund... This is, A, how we fund the union. Yeah. Union activities, apprenticeship, 
programs, job programs, uh, things like that. But it's also how they fund politics. And I know people say, oh, politics, you know, should we be doing that? But they're 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 advocating politically on behalf of their workers. They're doing voter drives They're They have a pack packs, you know, like things like that. And it's going to hurt. And I, you know, to go to your point about the disconnect between, you know, workers and, and Democrats and everything, I think the one of the more illuminating quotes that I, I got from somebody that I talked to down there on the union side was, you know, a lot of workers in Kentucky voted for change in this election, but they didn't vote for this. They didn't they didn't vote for a pay cut. Peter Ogburn sitting in for Bill Press today with director of Every Voice, Adam Smith. Adam, you can uh, or you can follow Adam at a Smith eighty three. The last time we spoke, we were talking about how Donald Trump was going to distance his businesses yeah. from the presidency. Yeah, and he also not long after uh, announced that he was going to have a big press conference. He was going to lay out um, how he's going to hand things over to his kids and and all of that, and then he canceled that press conference and it hasn't been made up now isn't that curious yeah you know yesterday was we celebrated the five-week anniversary of donald trump tweeting that he would hold a press conference to talk about his business been five weeks november 30th he has tweeted he tweeted i on december 15th i will hold a press conference to talk about my business and he has not done it since uh and sort of the news that has been leaking it makes pretty clear that he's not interested in doing what's necessary. There was this story right before Christmas that he'd do a half-blind trust, which is like being half-pregnant, right? <laughs> you, it's, you, can't, you still have one eye open. Yeah. And, uh, and then there, he, the, the foundation closed, which is the one good news. But, you know, you, and you keep seeing stories about all these conflicts every day, right? Yeah. Even at his New Year's party, the the guy who is his business partner in Dubai was at his New Year's party and Donald Trump praised the family in his speech at that party. And then the, the day before, the guy gave an interview saying, oh yeah, I plan to work with the family. The kids are going to be great. We're going to have all these new deals. So uh, explain to me why that is so... Such a bad idea to sure. have the kids. Because, you know, the kids have been very, very, very active yeah, in the sure. administration. Historically, if you look at countries around the world, mm-hmm. you see children as the way in for corruption, right? And lots of places where you have dictators or sort of authoritarian yeah. figures, the kids are really rich. Yeah. And you have to wonder why. Yeah. And hmm. um, so the, the kids being part of problem. Um, and also it just... Uh, you can't. There's a story in the Times about his uh, interest in Indonesia, mm-hmm. um, where the business, a lot of countries, the business partners there have close ties to the to the, the governments in power. So you you can if he knows who uh, his business partners are friendly to in those countries, is he going to make decisions that benefit the ruling party in that country? And that's a problem, right? If he's making decisions, if he has these competing interests, well, this regime uh, is bad for America. Mm. They also like to approve my hotel permits, right? That is bad. Uh, And not to mention that he's going to be in violation of the foreign bribery clause of the Constitution, like day one. There are all these (laughs) problems that he needs to completely sell it all. There's no half measures. There's no, oh, my kids will run it. Oh, my executive who I only talk to sometimes will run it. He has to sell it all. Let me ask you a question. This is purely out of curiosity because I just don't know the answer to this question. I I think that we got a really good glimpse into – we might have talked about this a little bit. But I think we had a glimpse into how Donald Trump plans on being president 
During the debates when Hillary Clinton said, you know, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't do this. And he says, hey, if you don't like it, you should have changed the law. Which means I think he knows the laws quite well and he knows what he can get away with. But then that, that leads to this question. Are there... How how great are the laws to rein in the corruption of the president of the United States? Or has it always just kind of been like tradition and we just assume whoever would be elected president is a fair and decent human? I, I, I use the analogy, which a lot of people have used, of Jimmy Carter. Yeah. A peanut farm will have absolutely no chance of right. being any kind of conflict to a president of the United States. And yet... He sold the peanut farm that he built yeah. with his own two hands. Put it into a blind trust, absolutely. Put it, put it into a blind, put yeah. it into a blind trust, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so, what are the what are the rules that will prohibit him from just openly cashing in on being president? You'll actually be you might be surprised at this that the the sort of conflict of interest rules yeah. don't actually apply to the president. That's what I was afraid of. Uh, so he that's what I was afraid of. He doesn't have to divest. He, uh, his companies. He doesn't right. technically have to do it, right. but um, also in the past you haven't had presidents who would be in violation of the foreign bribery clause, right? So uh, there's the difference between ethics rules and the Constitution and, crimin and yeah. like, criminal law. And so the one issue, yes, if he has interest, uh, he has debt to Wells Fargo, uh, a, a bank that is in the crosshairs of U.S. regulators, regulators that he'll appoint um, as president, that is very bad. But it's not uh, – he doesn't have to divest that money. The issue the, – the stuff that he does have to deal with is that the so-called emoluments clause well, – it's called the emoluments clause. I like to call it the foreign bribery clause mm -hmm. because he has interest in all of these countries and they are tied to foreign governments. And as soon as he take as soon as he gets any money from uh, a, foreign, a foreign entity, he is in violation of that. And then there's the GSA contract with his. He owns the. Um, That's exactly the, where I was the, going. The, the hotel with the yeah. fancy cocktails. That's exactly where I was going. He he his name is on that lease. Yeah. He owns it. Uh, there's a violation of a GSA lease to for a government employee to own a government building. How 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 is he going to get around that? Like, I I do think at the end of the day he's probably going to find a way around well, it because he's a worm and that's what worms. Well, pissed. he has a very creative lawyer who whose history <laughs> is ex creative is a nice way to put it. Uh, whose history is exploiting the weakness in our laws, mm -hmm. uh, campaign finance laws particularly. Uh, I mean, I guess if they move the contract to Ivanka yeah. and take it out of his name, that is one way around it. Yeah. But they haven't made it clear that they plan to do that. It's like uh, it, it's it, it, they're going to defeat uh, just like a rat king, right? Yeah. Like if it's not <laughs> it's not like yeah. one person, it'll, he'll pass it off to the yeah. next or the next or the next. Yeah. He'll just keep skirting. But, you know, the thing but is, that's, though, but that's sort of the that's what I was saying about like he knows these laws, like right. he knows exactly what he can get away with, and he has his kids in his pocket. Yeah, the one thing uh, I, I I feel more optimistic about is that. Graft and corruption are very easily understood. There's a reason Hillary Clinton looked like she was corrupt because sure. the State Department met with people who gave money to the foundation. That is easy to look at whether yep. whether it actually is corruption or not. And I do think that when you have these questions, there's going to be unless he divests, unless he sells it all, there's going to be this cloud of question over the entire administration. And I do think Americans will start. I mean, he again, he he did lose the popular vote. Uh, he has very low uh, approval ratings, and I think you will see when you start seeing these corruption stories, these like did he did he not? And then I think you'll see lawsuits and all sorts of stuff. I think that will have a toll on him.
we began this week with the well let me let me ask you before i get there i want to back up because you mentioned the trump foundation which yeah. is sort of going to be going away yeah um that, that seems like out of character for him yeah well i think what it to me it shows is that the pressure is sort of taking a toll like they know that the even if donald trump doesn't know the people who work for him know that this is an issue yeah and it's something that they're going to have to deal with and um uh, yeah, and the the, the era, his son shut down his foundation, uh, and I think that's those are the easiest things to do. The thing is about the Trump Foundation they didn't do anything, so it wasn't actually that hard. To right, shut it right, down. right, right, right. Okay, so um, the the other thing that I kind of wanted to get in here is when we when we started uh, the week, we were talking about getting rid of the ethics office for Congress. Um, that lasted about twenty four hours, thirty six hours or so, even less than that. Yeah. So here, here's the thing that I think is so interesting about this. I think that there are so many Republican members of Congress who just learned the wrong lesson, yeah. right? Like, they think that they can now act like Donald Trump, right? Like, they think that they can go out and act above the, the, the law and right. above the sort of norms of being a politician. But they're really going to shoot themselves in the foot because only Donald Trump could be Donald well, Trump. Well, and actually— Like, like M Mitch McConnell, this comment he made about— uh, this is not about the other stuff. This comment they made about, like, well, the American people aren't going to tolerate uh, uh, not having a Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, they will, yeah. dude. Yeah, they absolutely will. And you can't say that. Well, because well, people know you're full of crap. Yeah. Well, voters didn't think Donald Trump was corrupt. That's the issue. They thought he was going to fight corruption. Yeah. And so that's the message that the House members should have taken, and they didn't. They said, yeah. oh, they're not going to care if we gut the ethics office. The thing is, that is, su I mean, we, it's such an easy message. Like, we went out to our people and we said, the House is going to gut the ethics oversight. And they were like, are you kidding me? And we got like hundreds of calls into congressional office because that's, Really easy. Um, and talking about Donald Trump's businesses, you know, one of the reasons that the House doesn't like the OCE, the Office of Congressional Ethics, is a couple years ago, um, it uh, the, ho the House Ethics Committee sort of stopped looking into this trip that um, all these House members took, paid for by this sort of weird, shady-looking nonprofit. Uh, to go to Azerbaijan. Mm -hmm. Turns out the nonprofit was funded by an Azerbaijan oil company. And so that the OCE kept <laughs> investigating and figured that out. So the thing is, if Donald Trump still has all these businesses, right, in foreign countries, who's to stop his hotel company in the Philippines from funding a nonprofit yeah. that gets these <laughs> that get pays for a trip for these house members who are like waffling on an important vote, yeah. right? Like and if you get rid of the OCE, you're not going to learn about that stuff. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. I'm thrilled to be joined by the national security correspondent for BuzzFeed News, Allie Watkins. First time on the show, right? Yes, thanks for having me. I'm very excited. excited. I'm excited. This is great. I'm a big fan of yours. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Allie Watkins. You had uh, a couple of bombshells this week with your reporting. Um, 
The FBI never asked access for access to hacked computer servers. This is the DNC. So the FBI didn't get a chance to look at the DNC computers, which were hacked, stolen data. But then it all now, as the uh, as the process turns, it looks like the DNC just never gave them. Yeah. So this has become a re- crazy, bizarre fight. Uh, like essential um, one-upping between FBI and the DNC that I never expected this story to turn into. Um, I had been hearing for months that the FBI had never actually accessed the DNC's servers, which on its face, I didn't know if that was weird or not. And and several of my other colleagues didn't know that, like, it's a strange thing to not have happened, but maybe that's normal. I don't know. Um, But the more we started talking to people... um, you know, there was some weird hole where the FBI had never actually, like, independently looked at the DNC servers. Mm-hmm. And it began where we didn't know if that was because DNC said no or FBI didn't ask. Um, so we sniffed around enough on it. And when we had enough intelligence sources, I went to DNC and they came out with this guns blazing on the record statement saying, well, FBI never asked us. Um, we gave them third party stuff and that was more than sufficient um, and an FBI refused to comment, as they always do. Uh, so we wrote it. And then obviously last night the FBI fired back and be- said, no, DNC refused. We tried to get it for so long. It's it's just such a like middle school fight right now between DNC and FBI over the server. It's bizarre. And what's, fun- and what's interesting to me is to just see how dysfunctional both the FBI and the DNC are. Uh, in like they're compounding each other's dysfunction, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is the problem. <laughs> it's like one of those. It's like it's like one of those relationships where you just like it just slowly starts to fall apart, and they just see just how broken the two of you are, especially when you're with each other. <laughs> yes, you know, like it just degrades the longer and longer you stick with it. Um, that was a little too personal, but <laughs> but, but like, <laughs> but like. They really bring out the worst in each other. Yeah. I, I think the – so just to add, like, more bizarreness to this, which I didn't get to really fully explain in the story from last night, um, DNC tried to roll over us for this story yesterday afternoon. Yeah. Um, none of them would go on the record, which I, I firmly disagreed with, but they – I will say it on background because I agreed to it. They, they raked us over the coals, said this was a totally irrelevant story, is insignificant, the FBI didn't have access, um, it, this is not a big deal, you made a mountain out of a molehill here, we're not bureau defenders, but the bureau didn't do anything wrong, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I brought up to them, you know, there's rumors – that the FBI asked and DNC said no. That didn't happen. That's not true. Like, completely denied it. And then three hours later, the FBI, <laughs> like, says it. It's, it's, <clears throat> you can't even, like, keep your head straight. They are so diametrically opposed. And then we as reporters are in the middle, like, okay. Is it ass covering? Is it something else? I don't know. See, that's, I think, if it was just ass covering, yeah. I think you uh, could, I don't know. I feel like there'd be more, less like tension. I think okay. it's more like ass covering, but yeah. also there is there is running tension between DNC and FBI and Democrats generally in the FBI yeah. obviously. Um and I think this is just basically sticking a hot iron right into that nerve and twisting it. And yet, both of these organizations are going to be around for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Um uh, on the DNC stuff, I, I just I don't I just my my takeaway from this is I just don't think that they learned any lessons, right? Like they definitely were a mess in this past election. 
I mean, and they clearly they really are still. They really like, are. They, you they think they're still, still a mess. <laughs> yeah. So there hasn't really been a shakeup of the DNC. There hasn't been any like new leadership or anything like that. I think it's still sort of being handled and run by the same folks, and it's not a good look, I guess. And I not to. The, the DNC obviously is or deserves criticism in this, but the FBI we can beat up also, on the DNC all day. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. No, <laughs> I mean and they them. haven't learned their lesson in the way they handled, you know, the story and the reporting throughout the past 48 hours. I had never really worked with DNC before and was kind of in over my head. I was not expecting to, yeah. it to be as a mess as it was. Um, but the FBI also has not learned any lessons in that they could have kind of either clarified this i don't know spoke with dnc before i i don't i don't know if that's uncouth but it just would, it would seem to me that this has been escalated like n- not needlessly maybe but there were ways to not make yeah. it such a public pissing yeah. contest yeah all right that's all that's, that's all we're out of time that's all we're out of time director for every voice adam smith thank you for being here in thank studio you. follow him on twitter at a smith 83 and national security correspondent for BuzzFeed News, Allie Watkins. Follow her on Twitter at Allie Watkins. Thank you both for coming in. Have a magical weekend. Uh, We'll be back here on Monday. Don't forget, we're putting stuff out over the weekend, youtube.com slash thebillpressshow. Make sure you're following us on Twitter at BPshow. Have a good weekend. See ya. This is The Bill Press Show.